Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. In the early days, the file system was used a lot more than it is now. However, you're probably still going to have to use the file system periodically and you need to be aware of some of the things that can happen. In this episode, we're going to discuss issues you need to be prepared for when working with the file system. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I'm just going to, you know, I actually had more stuff on here, but I'm just cutting it back to the essentials here. Uh, Windows 10 Delinda Est. This is the most garbage operating system I've ever encountered and i've been using windows since 3 1 do you ever use windows 8 yeah it was worse not in my experience <laughs> i think it's you know the forced updates are a big part of it and if you build your own machine instead of getting a pre-canned one because mm-hmm. they push stuff and it breaks your your equipment so anyway i have i've had all kinds of problems i am now recording on the windows box because the scarlet decided for some reason that, Hey, I don't want to talk to Ubuntu anymore. So they're not friends. I could never get it to work. So we weren't able to record last week. So I moved it all back over here. Um, I am specking out a Mac mini to replace the windows setup for recording and for a lot of my coding and writing. And I want to move completely off of this pile of crap. Like I can't have everything breaking all the time. I would suggest I'll put a VM for windows. No, I was gonna say, I would suggest getting a, maybe a lesser Mac mini or something just for recording. That's what a lot of people do. Yeah. Like a, a separate recording box. That way nothing changes there and nothing you like, you're not putting extra stuff on it. Yeah. And I might do that eventually, or that box might become that over time. But the other problem is, is like the other day I was working on my Russian homework and my computer blue screened and rebooted three times in about a four hour period after this latest update. And then the next day and following it hasn't done it since. And I didn't change anything, which means somebody else changed something. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, I I can't trust the system to be stable to any degree whatsoever. And I'm kind of starting to see a lot of the same thing in other Microsoft products too. So like we just updated at work, we updated .NET core to 3.1. And we updated Entity Framework Core. Well, they changed the way that it brings back data. You know, when you're doing a you know, a deep tree, basically, from the database, mm-hmm. it joins all those tables. And so things that worked before just fine are now a combinatorial explosion. And we've had to rewrite tons of data access code. And we don't find it until it's in production under load on Sunday afternoons. Because that's when our load yeah. spikes happen. And it's just like they, they have a willingness to break everybody's stuff. And I'm kind of just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm done. Well, we, we knew when 3.1 came out, well, when 3.0 came out, that it was going to be breaking. Yeah, we did. It's just there was a lot of stuff, I think, that that wasn't as clear how bad it was going to be. And it wasn't like it was showing up in unit tests or showing up and actually like throwing an error. It changed the load characteristics. Yeah is what got us. And so it's like runtime breaks, not stuff that we could catch. So yeah, I'm just kind of seeing it across the board. The other thing is, is stuff like Evernote, Scrivener, you know, a lot of the other tools I use, their Windows versions are behind. They suck. They're horrible compared to their versions on everything else. Yeah. And I'm just like, why why am I doing this to myself? Like, I, I, I love me some VS Code and some TypeScript and put a MongoDB database in there. And man, I can, I'm happy. <laughs> so yeah, why would I do that? So that's where I am. I'm uh, I'm trying to spec out the, the Mac Mini. We'll see what I come up with. How about you? Well, uh, when it comes to Mac Minis, I've already spec'd it out. I know exactly what I want. It's just I've got other things to to purchase between now and then. I will be getting a Mac Mini, um, and this machine I have here is probably the last Windows box I'll ever purchase. I don't want to say ever, but it's the last one I plan on purchasing. So I'm going to get a Mac mini and maybe a Chromebook to carry around. I need something lighter and easier to carry around than this like bulky laptop, which I bought it because it was, I needed a laptop that could handle all the stuff I do. Yeah. 
Um, and now I'm looking to split things out. And so most of what I do, I don't do a lot of coding at home. I do some schoolwork, but uh, that's about it because like I'm pretty my downtime is school or creative stuff. And so I'm probably going to dedicate the Mac mini to that and then ultimately get myself a MacBook pro for development. I don't know enough about that. I guess it was two weeks ago. Now I took a trip up to McKay's with Amanda. And for those of you guys not from Nashville, it's sort of the biggest used book, movie, CD, everything store. They have musical instruments. They have, I got, I bought a board game. I mean, they have all sorts of stuff. I'm proud of myself. I only spent around $100. That's pretty low for you in a a case. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. Now, when I lived in Nashville, I was about five minutes from McKay's. I could almost walk there from where I lived. Almost. It'd be a little bit of a a stretch, but almost walk there. Five-minute drive. I'd go about once a month or so, so I didn't spend as much-ish. (laughs) Uh, per month but now it's a rare thing so i tend to spend more when i go and you know when the books are anywhere from two to five dollars each and the cds are three to seven dollars each i got a lot of stuff for a hundred dollars i was actually uh, in there like a couple days before you and i saw a full set except for one book in russian of tolstoy's works oh wow but they didn't have volume one of a 12 of volume set. Not. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah, of course not. Um, I found a bunch of Robert Heinlein books that I haven't read yet. I'm a big fan of his, but there are a finite number of his works because, you know, he's already passed on and I kind of want to enjoy them throughout my life. So I ration them. But when I see him at a used bookstore, I buy them up. because I love reading like the, the older version or not versions, but just like the older books. That was really cool. Guys, take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Level Up Financial Planning changes the financial planning game by empowering you to live your best life regardless of Whether you are just starting up and need to build your financial foundation or mid-career and navigating complex and competing goals. I'll tell you, Lucas would be proud of me because I actually budgeted to go to McKay's when Amanda told me that she needed to go buy books for her classroom. So, Yeah, that's probably good. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen what happens in there when people don't budget. It's bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like walking out with a paper box full of books. They spent $8. (laughs) (laughs) that's great best of all uh, lucas and level up financial planning is a fiduciary for his clients which requires him to act in his client's best interest now he's not a salesman like a lot of uh, financial planners you you go to them and you feel like they're just trying to sell you this or sell you that with him you only pay as long as you're getting value and you stop paying when you're no longer getting any value so you can find some more uh, fun, free resources and, and learn a lot more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Back in the day, before you learned to work with things like HTTP networks, databases, and so forth, you learned to work directly with the file system. While relatively simple on the surface, the file system of any modern operating system can be more complex than you realized. Oh, I know. Uh, Worse still, if you started programming in the last 10 years or so, the use of the file system for data storage has mostly been de-emphasized in favor of learning more about databases. While you're less likely to have to use the file system these days, that doesn't mean that you can entirely ignore it. Uh, Plenty of tools still make heavy use of the file system, including developer tools, uh, stuff like video encoding, image processing, bulk data, import and export, you know, those kind of things. In addition, legacy systems may still be dependent on the file system for some of their processing. So you may have to work with files on occasion. Um, I've run into this a lot in my career where, you know, we'll have some ancient VAX system that dumps a common delimited EBCDIC file out somewhere and you got to try to clean it up. And I still get pulled for those. So Mm -hmm. you probably will too at some point. 
Oh, yeah. Or um, if you're working with, say, digitization of documents, like as we as we try to reduce our paper trail or not paper trails, that sounds bad. As we try to reduce our uh, paper. It does sound print. bad. I yeah, know. I know. I really but it is like a paper. Sorry. It's like a logistical tail made out of paper. Yeah. It, well, it's uh, it, footprint is the word I was looking for because I was thinking of the word carbon footprint. But you know, as a lot of places are, I guess carbon footprint would be the way to go. We're trying to reduce that because storing paper files takes up space. It takes energy. It takes a lot. Um, whereas you can get all of that, like entire storage facility in a single server these days. Right. And it's easy to back up. It's easy to index. It's easy to add stuff in a way that it's indexable without some person having to do it. Um, so it's, it's got a lot of value. Um, it's also substantially less flammable. Yeah. As a rule. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not aware of any, you know, anybody trying to make hard drives out of thermite or something. So I'm assuming it's less flammable just in general. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I mean, there's a reason that companies do this, but they don't all do it at the same rate. That's true. Um, especially like older professions or things that they got a lot of paperwork, you know, so, you know, your, your banks, a lot of governmental stuff, mm-hmm. school systems, lawyers, they've got stacks of paper going back to the beginning. Doctors would be in the same boat, but they pushed the electronic medical records a while back. And so that's not as bad now. Well, I will say this from the, the public sector, a lot of government agencies, I guess it's not as like out there as the uh, electronic medical records, but a lot of government agencies are being pushed by legislation to move everything digital. Yeah. And I think they're really getting a lot of value out of that, right? Like it's not just a make work project. It's like, no, we could make government faster, more efficient, capable of doing more stuff with more headaches or with with fewer headaches. And yeah. I mean, and it's saving taxpayer dollars because storing those files costs a lot. Yeah. You know, and they're required to store them for a long period of time. And so having that digital saves money. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, my uncle accidentally set part of the mountain on fire because they had a bunch of paperwork that was stored and they had to keep like tax papers and uh, invoices and all that stuff for like seven years. Well, is that an oil distributorship? Guess where the papers got stored? In the warehouse with all the volatiles, right? And so you take them out and you put them in a pile of the mountain and you're going to burn it just like you're burning trash. And it doesn't light the way you think. (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) i follow you yeah so like there's all the you know the disposal the there's so many things that it's it's better and we all know this is computer people but i think it it kind of needs to be emphasized because we forget it so that said guys if you haven't done a lot with the file system recently or ever there are plenty of things that can cause you problems that you aren't prepared for even worse, a lot of these problems only appear on production systems when they're under load or in unusual circumstances that are hard to replicate. Tell me about it in the development environment. I was there when you told me about it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to talk about a number of things that can be a problem if you're starting to make more heavy use of the file system or especially if it's like your first few times and you don't know what can jump up and bite you, this episode is for you. So the very first one we're going to talk about is locks and the lack thereof. Now, what happens with a file, when you open it, you specify how you plan to work with it. That's read, write, or both. And then Linux has a execute, but we won't get into that. As well as whether to allow other processes to read or write the file while it's open. So depending on what you're trying to do with it, you may actually want other things to be able to continue writing. So like if you've got a log reader and you're reading out the logs, you know, you're using a, you know, like tail type setup, you know, you can see the latest thing that's going into the log as it's going. You may want to open it for read, but allow writes. Yeah. You mean lock it for read, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just open it for read, but you're not locking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So, but you want the writer to not lock it against read yeah. because now you can't, and so if you're writing a logging framework, again, this is one of those things I he, he beat the drum on. Don't ever write your own logging framework because this kind of stuff is why. Yeah. You got to be really careful with this because you could break other processes. Uh, logging's a great one that Will's using as an example. 
with the wrong locking settings, um, either by keeping them from accessing the file or by altering the file while they are accessing it. Yet yeah, one of the issues that, that I have seen working with files that they're scanned, paper documents scanned in, they're put onto a NAS, and then the code that I wrote reads that and puts it up into long-term storage. So like it's it's sort of like it's put into temporary and then I read it like temporary in the file system and then it goes up to more long term. And it's the code I wrote is it's just polling and it's looking, it's going, hey, are there files? Are there files? Are there files? Hey, there's files there. But it'll say there's files there, but they're still locked from loading into it. And so And you have to do crap like go, oh, is this file more than X number of minutes old? Yes. Yeah. And you then do you get a like really that. big it's one weird. sometime at two in the morning and it breaks everything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Like it's, it, it is not fun, the, the amount of stuff that can happen. It's the same problems you have with multi-threading, except now instead of memory, it's on disk. Yeah. Because that's effectively what's going on. It's a slower, you know, storage and a slower locking mechanism. And, and the thing is, is the same principle can work in reverse on you. So like, let's say that you're reading a file while you're allowing other processes to write to the file. You could say, okay, the record I need is at this point in the file because you looked it up, you know, Let's say it's a PDF and there's like a uh, there's a table in the file that tells you where other stuff is, right? You go, oh, it's at this position, and so you jump down there, but somebody else wrote in between and it isn't there anymore, and so you can get those kind of situations happening. Now you're probably not going to run into that with PDFs unless you're doing real low level stuff and you're probably poking around where you shouldn't because PDFs are not they're not really fit for human consumption anyway. <laughs> but just as far as that goes. The other thing is you might find that you're denied access to a file because the constraints that are placed on it by other apps. Your example was perfect. You're polling for a file that's coming in and it's still locked for reads because it's still being written to. It's like it's coming in over FTP or whatever. Mm -hmm. This was really common back in the day. Like this was our inter-process communication with a lot of systems. It was, oh, once a day they upload us a file and we have to read that in and process it. And so the file has to be there by a certain time and unlocked for our process to read it, or we got to have something that's polling. And it was a nightmare back in the day. You don't run into this as much now, but uh, it can still definitely get you. Speaking of other stuff that can get you, <laughs> removable or disconnectable media. I'm not sure if disconnectable is actually a word, but we're going to treat it like it is. Um, so back in the day, we had to worry about things like floppy disks, right? Or zip disks or CDs or, you know, if you were really rich, you know, a jazz drive. Remember those? <laughs> I knew like very, one very guy big. that had one of those, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and then they couldn't get any media. So he was, you know, toast. But what would happen is, is like you'd be reading and writing and somebody would eject it. Somebody ejects the floppy. Yeah. Right. That's a common uh, thing. Um, it's not as much of a worry today because we don't use as much media that's you know ejected even dvds and stuff are becoming less common yeah right the the box i've got sitting over here to my left that i built you know i got the case and you know got everything in and i'm like wait i don't have a place for a drive <laughs> there's no bay <laughs> so i had to get an external drive because like you don't really need it that much so you don't see it as much but there are some cases for instance usb drives another example is network shares um these things can be disconnected or removed while you're accessing them. So you did a read from the file, you got a chunk of data, the next read may not work. You can't just gate your open and closing logic with try catches. It's every read has to do that because it can go wrong anywhere. And you're probably not going to get a whole lot of notice if that happens, right? Like the operating system is not going to send you a message that says, yo dog, you can't do this now. So next time you want to try it, don't. Especially with like network disconnections. Still think you ought to... Uh to write some uh, some protocol or, or language called YoDog. I do too. And and recursion is going to be the first thing that goes in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> YoDog, yeah. I heard you like recursion in your programming language. You like recursion in your programming language? So now the thing is, is you don't want stuff to fail if the device disconnects for a second, especially if it's disconnectable. Because if it's disconnectable, that doesn't necessarily mean that the user disconnected it. Um, so you could have things like you are plugged into a USB hub, which I don't like to do that with storage devices um, because of this, because sometimes they'll blip and it just doesn't work for a quarter second. And if you were doing a read, then you're out of luck. You got to catch it and have some kind of retry logic, probably with a back off. And you're getting into kind of the enterprise design pattern type space there. Oh yeah, I have a, 
I'm wary of USB hubs. I have one. It's a very expensive one, but I had one before that was not as expensive and uh, it had a power surge and like totally destroyed. Thankfully, the the laptop was either protected or it wasn't plugged into it, but it uh, totally knocked out my keyboard that my sister got me for Christmas. It was a gaming keyboard and the mouse I had. I got a nicer mouse. I had a backup keyboard that I'm still using. I haven't gotten around to getting a new one because I'm like, this one works. Yeah, I've got like four backup keyboards here. Yeah, I know what <laughs> like you mean. I buy a computer and I yeah, automatically get my keyboard and my backup keyboard, but then I still use the one that I already had. Yep. I don't really know why I did that, but yeah, it's a thing. The other thing with this is this stuff can, in addition to totally failing, it can also remain connected, but you know, lose performance. So networked devices can be a big problem, right? You're reading off of a network drive on the server, but the server gets DDoSed and you know, the drive is, is getting pegged and you're trying to read from it or it could be, you know, starting to go and can be really slow. So you also have to take that into account. You have to assume that, okay, well, this could get slow. What does my app do? You know, does it lock up the main thread when this happens? Thankfully, if you're doing stuff like Node or most, really most modern file access, you're going to deal with it being async anyway, because, you know, we've all learned this the hard way. Uh, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. You know, stuff would lock up because it couldn't read the file system and it wouldn't come back until it could. The next uh, problem that you may have to deal with is a problem of permissions. Just because you can see or even open a file doesn't mean that you can write to it. File system permissions are one of the primary ways that you're going to have problems here. Yeah. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that you will have this problem. Yeah. Like, it's not a thing where you may. It's like death. It's certain at some point. Uh, you could just try to put it off. That's basically all you're going to be able to do. Now, files are not the only things that get secured. Uh, paths are as well. So you might not be able to even see a folder in which your file resides. You get a different error sometimes if you're you know, kind of trying to drill down in there, trying to build a path and get to it, and you can't for some reason. Permissions can also be a bit more granular than you want. For instance, you might be able to read a file or append to it, but you can't overwrite it. So like a log file, for instance, they may say, hey, we don't want people overwriting this. They can append, but processes can't override it because if they get compromised, then they were able to blow away the logs. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, a lot of systems, Linux, for example, include an execute part. Uh, so if you are attempting to run another program or script, this permission may get in your way as well. Yeah. And there's also, you know, there's metadata and stuff. So the file system sometimes is aware of where you got a file. So if you get a, an executable and you just download it off the open internet and you try to run it, Windows is not going to be okay with that. Yeah. That'll definitely uh, jump up and bite you. Speaking of things that jump up, disk issues is another very fun problem. <laughs> Hard drives fail or start to develop problems over their life cycle. This used to be more common than it is now because they actually had moving parts. So if you have like an old school, you know, hard drive, which a lot of your bigger drives on desktop still are, I've got two four terabyte drives in this rig here. There's a spinning platter and, you know, there could be all kinds of problems. There could be a head crash, you know, it can just not be able to read. It can get, you know, some kind of physical damage. Well, like SSDs do go out over time as well, but Yeah, they do. For but they just don't seem as, and Yeah, they're not as bad though. Yeah, well, it's 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 different reasons, and they la they typically last a bit longer. Yeah, of course, I will say that some substantial percentage of my perspective on that is probably from working around people that had anger management issues and would hit machines when they didn't like what was going on, <laughs> and so that probably didn't help with the head crashes. Yeah, yeah, a hard drive can be under high utilization as well and be slow. Or the file system on disk could be slowed due to lack of maintenance. Uh, this will get you on Windows, for instance, if your temporary files build up. Like my mother, a few years back, was going to buy a new laptop because hers was just dog slow. And so I was like, that doesn't seem like it should be that slow. And I got in there and cleaned out the temporary files. I ran a disk cleanup. It had not been run in like five years. And it was like she had a new computer. Yeah. And I mean, it took it like four hours to run disk cleanup. Um, that could happen. I know. I used to do that for my mom. And then you got her a Linux machine and didn't worry about it anymore. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, uh, it's 
it cracked me up how she took to Linux because she was like, oh, this is just like the systems I learned nursing on. Yeah, that's a really strange thing when you figure out your parents are just normal adults. <laughs> and like something that you just didn't, you know, like you didn't think about them doing that you would do. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Like what cracks me up is she was terrified of Windows. Well, I don't blame her, but yeah. <laughs> she was like always worried because she was unfamiliar with with Windows. But I gave her that Linux machine and she was just like, oh, yeah, this I'm familiar with this. I know how to do this stuff. And she just took off with it. I didn't have to do anything yeah. other than like a few set up a few drivers for. Her. Now, the thing about disk issues is that they don't just happen when you first open a file because it can occur you know, during a read write loop, those kind of things. You just have to assume any access to a file system is something that can fail at any time. And then you'll probably be good most of the time. So the next thing that you have to worry about is encodings. So not all files are ASCII. Not all file paths are either. Right, which is always fun for people when they're like oh yeah i can use a i'm in delphi and i can use a pointer to an ansi string <laughs> and it's like well you better might ought to think about that a little bit because sometimes you you can't quite get away with what you think you can it won't get you often but what tends to happen is you get like one client that for some reason has their clients overseas you know they get a new client in japan and they get a file from them and they're like, oh, I can pull this in. My people can read Japanese. So it's not a problem, but your program can't. And it's in the file path. That can, that can be a problem. Yeah. And, and w- in the English speaking world, we made the assumption, you know, years ago, like you didn't hear about like internationalization. It was, it's like, no, you're going to be dealing with English, period. Like, I mean, I'm talking like late 90s, right? You're looking at it and you're like, well, we might have to deal with Spanish someday. And of course, now that sounds hilarious to everybody that's listening <laughs> because it's like, well, we're going to have to deal with the year 2000 someday. It's like, that sounds so ridiculous that you would ever think that that's a someday, you know, versus like, we just need to handle it. In reality, we shouldn't have been worried about 2000. We should have been worried about 2020. Yeah, for real. <laughs> I mean, oh, my. I mean, it's like a it's like a 404 or five times over. Um <laughs> Sorry, that's wow. a bad web joke. Yeah, I just did an <laughs> HTTP joke. I'm sorry. I'm not really that sorry. That's like a little bit worse than a dad joke. I got to you know put that there. Your file contents might also have a different encoding, which we talked about this at length in the episode on strings. But sometimes this can do interesting things to you. So for instance, let's say that it's a configuration file and it's not encoded in ASCII. And from it, you get a file path that you're assuming is ASCII. Right, like this problem again. It needs the Yo Dog protocol and its recursive Yo Doggedness that we discussed earlier. <laughs> I, I'm still looking forward to when you write this because it's going to be fun. RFC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the next thing that you have to worry about in the file system is path issues, and we kind of hit on a little bit of that uh, with our encodings. But just because you get a file path. It does not mean that you can use it. And this is especially true if those come out of config files. And yeah, I uh, <laughs> I know that too <laughs> from experience. Yeah, like my favorite <laughs> is when somebody does a, um, they'll, they'll copy a relative path from one system to another. <laughs> and so yeah, it's a dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash. You know, they got like six of those and then it's this whole structure and you know, it's like on the root of C on your machine. And you're like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah, this happens all the time. Um, it can also be a problem if the user enters a path that's too long. So most modern tools can handle longer file paths. But if you're calling out to old code, sometimes you have to be careful about that because mm-hmm. they may not be able to handle, you know, longer file links. And you may have to do some really, really weird things. Like there's stuff in Windows going back there that really ugly and you still occasionally run into it. To deal with this a little bit in some of the stuff I wrote, I actually went and learned how to build installers that uh, will update the config based on where it's placed. Yeah. So when you run the installer and install the code, it updates the config with where the code is installed so it knows how to get to what it needs to get to. 
Well, you know, the other alternative to that is to just dump everything into the system path. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, just, it's a junk drawer. That's what it's for, right? Windows erased my system path, by the way. Like it broke Node. It broke VS Code. Like it did an update uh, like 12 or 13 days ago. And like I had to, I couldn't run Node. Wow. <laughs> like, come on, man. It's like Node's busted. Python's busted. Ruby's busted. Because I put all those in there because like I did use it as a junk drawer because I'm like, I wanted to be able to get to it from the console and it work. Yeah. You think that's reasonable. And I had other apps, but you can't necessarily be sure about that. Another thing to think about here too, especially as you go cross platform or start using different things like the Windows subsystem for Linux is that path separators are not the same across systems. So Windows uses backslash Unix uses forward slash. There's also stuff that you have to kind of be careful about with things that are in the path. So certain characters can't be used. So stuff that are like globs, you know, like a star, a question mark, you can't use those in paths in windows, you know, stuff that's in regexes, obviously uh, you can't use escape sequences. So those kind of things you kind of be aware of as well. So somebody could type something in and it's not valid just because it has a different meaning. So you may have to escape things before you put them in. Yeah. Now, a couple of weird things is that uh, two paths that are string equals may not necessarily be the same file. And uh, the converse, two paths that are different can point to the same file. This is especially an issue if you have two different processes that Mm -hmm. have two different logins because that stuff is set up and they, you know, so you'll get a lot of weird stuff with sim links. You'll get, you know, Hey, here's the root of your stuff. And you know, yeah, path is slash my crap slash file.txt, but it may be Mm -hmm. different than slash my crap slash file.txt for the other process that's running in a different space. So it's just something you got to be aware of. Operating systems have options for aliasing files, directories, drives, those kind of things. And so you just have to be aware of that. So just because you you can't do things like say, okay, I'm going to keep a list of the ones I've got open. And if it's not in that list, then I think I can open it because you may have it open, but it's not the same string to get to that file, if that makes sense. Like I've seen people do this and you get weird periodic errors that don't make sense until you understand this. Yeah. So... You also have to be careful when moving files. A file path that is acceptable in one directory may become too long when you move it to another one. Yeah, and if your path includes node underscore modules, <laughs> just you're not going to move it. Yeah. <laughs> just delete it, move the stuff, npm install on the other side. It's a lot better that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember like when I had um, like I had my tablet and I wanted to be able to sync Dropbox on the tablet and like the dev launchpad site was on was oh. in Dropbox. Yeah, it, was and it took so. like eight hours to sync <laughs> Yeah, because like, of all those small little files. And this was back in the day, too. I mean, I think they've optimized the way node stores things. That was horrendous. It's like, OK, I can I can completely drain my battery syncing before I can do anything with it. And I don't even need those files. I'm doing something else. Um, so yeah, it was you just had to be aware of that. Now, speaking of this kind of thing, there's also issues with naming files. Some paths can't be used. Um, you know, certain characters can't be used in certain paths. This is also true of file names because that's part of the path. Windows doesn't allow glob characters, you know, like star, question mark, etc., to be used in file names. There's also some file names that are special. For instance, in Windows, you can't have a con.txt, you know, con.txt, or a ux.mp3. Um, this is a really, really ancient backward compatibility thing. And we're going to have a link to it in the show notes. If you read it, you're not going to like this more than likely. Um, it goes back to 1974. Yeah. I remember when you were writing this episode, you sent me a, <laughs> a Hangouts message. You're like, OMG. This is yeah. like from 1974 and you, you sent me the link and I looked it up. I was like, holy cow. It makes sense because Windows tries to be backward compatible. Yeah. Tries to be. Except when I need it to be. Yeah. Like my computer <laughs> just rebooted in the middle of 
doing Russian homework, yeah, you know, earlier that day. But hey, you know, it can be compatible with CPM from back when George Lucas was writing Star Wars. <laughs> right. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I, I don't want to beat on Windows, but actually I do. They're, they're pretty bad about this. You also have to be careful about how you treat file extensions. Um, the extension is not the first three characters after the first period in the file name. It's also not the last three characters of the file name, right? It doesn't have to be a three character extension. Yeah. Just be aware of that. It's not something that is as simple as you think. Uh, most of the stuff isn't. That's why you use APIs to get those things instead of trying to do it yourself. Speaking of extensions, be careful to use appropriate extensions for any files that are intended to be read by humans or by other programs. Some apps simply look at the extension on a file to determine what tool should open that file so an incorrect extension could cause a problem. That said, you also have to think about when you are dealing with file uploads, people who will nefariously upload something with an extension that is acceptable and it is a different type of file. I know this because I have written code to check for things like executables when it doesn't have a .exe at the end of it. Right. Or, um, you know, do the thing where like you're sending a zip file over email and some, you know, enterprise protection systems are like, oh, we can't send a zip file through email. But that's bad. And so like there's so many people I know now that are used to getting files from me that end with .waz, which means was a zip. <laughs> and they just like rename it to zip and open it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know? uh, those systems are so dumb. They just they go, oh, it's not a it's not a zip file. I'm not going to look in there to see if it's got any of the stuff that indicates that it's a zip file. I'll just assume it's fine. But you do have to be careful about this. Um, the other thing is, is if you are trying to open a file, like let's say it's a .doc file, right? You're trying to open a Word doc for whatever purpose, and it's on a client's system. Use the operating system to determine what program should be opening that. There's file associations set up for these kind of things instead of just going, oh, I know it's Word. Um, because a client might have, for instance, open office, or you might be trying to open a text file and you open it in notepad and some dude has a 50 inch screen like I do. That's crazy bright when it's a white background and they want it to open a notepad plus plus. So it's not eye bleaching. Like it's, it's a courtesy thing for your users in that case, but there's cases where it can actually be kind of bad if you open it in the wrong app. Yeah. So the final thing that we're going to talk about, uh, you have to look out for with file systems is oof this is this is one of the harshest timing issues yeah you'll have things like enterprise systems that run antivirus software because goodness knows we do need to protect against viruses although about half of enterprise antivirus software might better be categorized as enterprise autoimmune software um just for the wonderful side effects that it has a lot of times a, a new file hits the system and this stuff will scan, right? So like you have a file coming in on FTP, it's mm -hmm. a big file, then it gets moved and renamed because your FTP program is smart and doesn't, you know, doesn't want to break anything that's using that file. So it's just, it gets it on disk and then does a quick rename and because that's fast. But then the software goes, oh, it's a rename. Obviously this file is new, so I'm going to scan it and it's a half gigabyte file. <laughs> And of course, it's not going to let you get a lock on it, but it just showed up in your directory. So you have to be really careful because a lot of times you can't read a file just because it got written to disk because some other program that you didn't expect is reaching in there and touching it. And by the way, that program may change when your code does not. That's what yeah. really gets you. So another one, and this is something that I've run into with uh, scanning in paper documents when you have like even though it's just turning them into PDFs, when you have like documents that are hundreds of pages long, it, it can get big. Just because you have a new file on disk doesn't mean that it's ready for reads. If you have a large file being transferred, even if the connection is good, like Will has over a slow connection here, but even if it's a good connection, it can still be a while before you're, uh, you're able to read it. Even then, sometimes the system will keep it locked after like, 
you know, I, this is something I've run into where it'll be uploaded and the system will still have it locked for a few more cycles. And I'm not exactly sure why it does that. I've seen it do that when there is no antivirus or when like you write to the disk and Windows, you know, you have like a file notification set up. And so your app gets the call back. It's like, hey, yo dog, here's your new file, right? Using the yo dog protocol. And you got your new file, but yo dog, it's not your file yet. And it happens for some reason. And it's not entirely clear to me why that is. Um, The other thing that'll get you sometimes is stuff like the search service running or, you know, any number of other really odd things can happen. It's also possible to see a file on the file system and have it disappear between it being found and being opened. This happens a lot. If you have something that writes a file, like with a temp file name, you know, it's like, oh, it's whatever.txt.tmp, right? And it writes it in the same directory. Well, if you're looping and saying, hey, is there a new file? And you see that new file and you try to read from it, it may get deleted or renamed you know, by the time you get to it. Oh yeah. Well, that's when you just look for that dot TMP extension. So, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Don't ever, <laughs> Sorry, don't ever to, branch to, on that. I had to bring that yeah. back up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because you'll have somebody go, Oh, it's a temp file. It's dot T E M P and stuff will get imported and it won't be complete. And you will never figure out why I've seen that one happen. <laughs> it was days before we figured out, Oh Yeah. They only got like half the records. The other part of the system reported an error that didn't make sense either because the file that they were trying to write to disappeared because, you know, they're writing it out, but they, you know, something got slow or whatever. And so it stopped before the rename because like, oh, I'm the only one that has this file. So I can just write to it. And if, you know, something goes wrong, I can get back to it later. And when it's done, I'll change the name. And somebody else goes, oh, I see this new file. I'm going to read from it, get the data out. And so that the directory stays clean, I'm going to delete it. And so the other app fails trying to write it. And this one didn't get all of its data. And you find it six months later during an audit. That was, that was fun. I'm glad I wasn't the one that wrote either part of that code. (laughs) I was really thrilled that wasn't me because I would have done that at that point in my career, but it was somebody else's mistake on both ends. And they were, neither of those people were still there. So it's still my problem because the audit. You still had to deal with it, but it yeah, it's not my dumpster fire, but it is a dumpster fire. It was, it was your responsibility, but not your fault. Right. I can't tell you how many of those I've been dealing with lately because I lost count. That's always fun. Um, now here's another fun scenario. Let's say you've got an app that lives on a virtual machine. And the target file is on a network share. Um, now, you can do this with Docker and like a storage location too, right? Where you pause it. But I've seen it more with VMs. You know, the VM sees the file, but the VM gets paused before it starts trying to read it, right? Because you, know, you can kind of hibernate them and you can bring them back up. The file's deleted in the interim. So it just checked and said, hey, yeah, the file's there and it's about to execute some logic and it hit at that point. Now the file's gone and it's going into a branch that assumes the file is there. Um, that won't happen a lot but it will happen a little and it'll be some weird little edge case and you won't know why it's busted. So basically what I'm saying on this one is even though that you're sure the file is there and you just check, you still have to wrap with a try catch. You can't just assume that that didn't change in between, especially if you're doing stuff async and you're waiting a second before you get to it. That makes sense. It's just, there's no perfect way to say that this file exists and is going to exist at the time I try to read it. Yeah. Basically, even though you are taught to check for files existence before trying to open it, that is not a perfect way to make sure the file exists, is readable, and can be accessed by you. This is something I've run into, and I I spent a good couple of days looking into, all right, how do I do this? And basically, the way, at least with the, which I think, the the way that I got around it that, that I saw online was to create a method that was basically a try catch that tried to read it. If it could read it, it said, hey, it's available. If it couldn't read it, it said, hey, it's not available. And it was just a like a Boolean method that was like, all right, try to read it. If you can close it. Yep, you're good. If not. Nope. Yeah, or you have to put like retry logic in there to go. I'm gonna keep trying until I get the lock. Yeah, I've done that too. And the really fun one happens is when you got multiple files and you need to get all of them before you start 
messing with something no. and something else needs to get all of them before it starts messing with something. And you each get a subset of the total set of files that you need and you get a deadlock based on the file yeah. system. Those are awesome. They're not really awesome. Don't actually do that. Or when you want to, when you put retry logic in and you're like, all right, I will retry this file and move on to the next one because you got a bunch of files to deal with. So you're like, all right, I'll retry this one later, move on to the next one. But you have to put it in such a way that, hey, if the file's corrupted or if something happened, I don't want to just like forever retry on this one file. Most of these problems are kind of multi-threading type problems, uh, but people don't expect to run into them with the file system because they don't realize, hey, I'm sharing memory with another process. It's well, like I'm not really sharing memory, but I'm sharing disk, which is not that different as far as like it's a chunk of stuff out here that i've got to get a lock on and pull yeah i mean you can you can really get burned very very easily with this and nothing is ever as simple as um, any example now if you go to stack overflow and you look at examples of file system accessing code be really really careful which ones you take if they don't have error handling logic in there you're gonna have a bad time if it does the entire entire file reading loop. You know, it's one thing if it's like, hey, just, you know, grab all the text and load it into a string and you're going to process it in memory. That's probably okay. But if it's like, oh, I'm buffering and taking chunks and it doesn't have try catch and retry logic around that buffering, you're going to have a real bad time if you put that on a server. So guys, um, wow, mucking about, really? Will's word. <laughs> I guess uh, I was, I guess oh I was being goodness. a bit British or something. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I think you thought you were going to be reading this part. Uh, I don't know. So uh, while mucking about uh, with the file systems is fairly straightforward, there are a few pitfalls for the unwary, especially on systems accessing large numbers of files, large files, or doing so in unusual circumstances. However, once built well, these file systems can often run for decades without modification, as the means of working with files is very old, very stable, and very well established in most of your environments. Learning to do this well is a skill that will pay off massively over time. So we just wanted to give a thank you and a shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, just like he'll help you achieve your financial goals. So Beach, uh, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? It's still very weird for me to ask you that. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, we're going to go into some, some details about what we're doing that next week. So guys, just like with file systems or files on a system, you need to be careful who you call out in meetings, especially meetings with higher ups and managers there. Um, not too, too long ago, I was in a uh, sort of our, our weekly commitments meeting is what we call it. But instead of doing a daily stand up, we do one meeting with the entire team. It's like, all right, you're working on this, you're working on that, and sort of just kind of very brief overview of what people are working on and stuff like that. But uh, something got brought up and I was asked if I was working on it. I was like, hey, I was I was unaware that that was a, an issue. And someone said, uh, one of my coworkers was like, well, I emailed you about that last week. Why haven't you gotten on it? I was like, I was on vacation last week. I was here one day and I was in meetings all day long. I still haven't gone through all my emails yet. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is Monday. I'm, I'm like, it's, this is 9 a.m. on Monday. I spent an hour already going through emails and I still have 50 more to go through. So I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and so I just like asked my boss, do you want me to jump on this right now? And he was like, no, I want you to finish going through your emails because I want you to kind of catch up to where that is and then put this as your priority as soon as you get caught up. But I just want to say it's almost never a good idea to throw someone under the bus in a meeting, though sometimes others might do it to you. If you have your ducks in a row, it rarely goes well for the person calling you out. Yeah, it's like, uh, what's the recommendation that we gave is if somebody's going to throw you under the bus, make sure one of their he their head gets under one of the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds like something yeah, you probably. would say. Yeah, 
Um, thing is, if you find yourself needing to call someone out in a meeting, don't. If it can't be avoided, then do it tactfully so that they don't feel attacked or go on the defensive. In this situation, it was not done tactfully. It was a, it was honestly very defensive from the other person. It was, well, I told you about this. Why haven't you done it yet? Uh, I'm like, cause I just got back from vacation. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it, it never ends well. You know, it is, it is very much, you know, it, it's like the uh, organizational equivalent of reading from a file system that you can't necessarily trust. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So guys, you know, like I said, if, if you need to do it, find another way. Um, and if there is no other way, then do it in such a way that they don't either. They don't realize they're being called out or it's done so tactfully. Like you're like, Hey, did you get my email? Have you had a chance to look at my email yet? Um, or understand the situation. Was my email helpful? Yeah. Was my email helpful? Do you need more information about this? What that does is it puts the ball in their court to go, Oh, you know, they're not on the defensive. They're going, you're, they're going, Oh, Hey, they're trying to be helpful. And that's what you're trying to do. If you're calling someone out, it's to get them to do something that they're not doing. And so you want them to look at you as, Hey, they're being helpful. So guys, that's pretty much all I got. Wait, how do you say it? What do you say at the end of an episode? It's been a while, uh, since, been a while since I have too, because the stupid hardware problems. <laughs> that pretty much wraps. I that's know, pretty much I, all I got. All right, guys. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much all I got. All right. We'll get better. It. We promise. Uh, guys. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, we got, we got a really cool episode. I'm just going to promote that really quickly. We got a really cool episode coming out next week. Check it out because we're going to talk about uh, some of our goals and some of the really cool stuff we have down the line. I, I wrote most of the episode. Will wrote a few pieces that he's been working on, and so it's going to be it's going to be a good one. And uh, just uh, bone up on your smart goals before this episode because uh, that's a key component of it. So uh, we'll catch you guys next week. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.